it's time for us to open our Bibles now and to turn to 1 Corinthians. We continue our look at this letter today, and we're still in chapter 1. Last week, I introduced the series, and if you missed it, I do encourage you to go to our YouTube channel to, to watch it, or maybe download the podcast, and you can listen to it while you drive. Um, I laid a lot of groundwork in the sermon last week, um, and so it'll help you understand uh, why Paul wrote this letter and some of the backdrop that is behind these words. But I will say, say a few brief words today to reset the scene for us all. So Corinth was and is a city in southern Greece. If you could go to the next slide there, Hetty. Uh, I got it circled there or squared, I guess, um, over there. And it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, but then it was rebuilt by the Romans 100 years later. And by the time Paul arrived in AD 50, it was a multicultural hub of trade and commerce. So Corinth's main economic engine was a road that traversed the narrow slice of land separating the Ionian Sea on the west and the Aegean Sea on the east. The engineers in Corinth built something. Uh, they built a road and then they built a device, a, a rolling device to pick ships out of the water and to transport them across the thin slice of land to the sea on the other side. So here's a picture of the old uh, portage route. You can see the road there right to the sea. Somehow they got the ships out on carts and towed them across. And today there's a canal there, uh, so that was built in 1881. But that wasn't there when uh, Paul was there. But you can see it's, they, they want a waterway because it saves a lot of time to go through this thin slice of land as opposed to going all the way south. And the other reason they wanted this waterway is because the southern route was, uh, as well as taking more time, it was actually, actually very dangerous. And so Corinth really positioned itself as a center of trade and commerce. All the goods from the west going to the east went through Corinth. All the goods from the east going to the west went through Corinth. And the Corinthians were there to collect their slice of the pie. So all this helped to make Corinth a place where upward mobility was a real possibility. Very competitive place, very entrepreneurial place. Paul lived and worked in Corinth for about 18 months. He made tents there with Priscilla and Aquila during the day, and he spent his nights and weekends preaching the gospel, preaching Christ wherever he could. The Spirit blessed Paul's efforts. People came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and a church was formed. And when Paul's time in Corinth was complete, uh, he moved on to Ephesus, and it was there that Paul began to hear troubling reports, both verbal reports from people he knew and also written reports that were delivered by members of the church. And these were troubling. There's not, not a lot of good. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in the church. And so Paul picks up the pen, and he begins to write a response, both to the verbal and the written reports that he's receiving. So we looked at the introduction of the letter last week, and one of the amazing things we saw in the intro is that though there are major problems in the church, Paul has an amazing confidence in what God has done and in what God will do. 
Paul sees this broken community through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of what God has done for them in Christ. And in the rest of the letter, he will simply encourage them to grow up into their identity together in Christ. Okay, so with all, that all in mind, we pick up the letter in uh, chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in, into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, a while ago I had a conversation uh, with a man whose son was trying to make it as a rapper in the music industry. I asked him, uh, how's it going? Is he getting anywhere? Not really, the dad answered. And then he told me a few things of how making it somewhere works in the music business, especially among rap artists. Basically, you need to make friends in high places. You need to network with higher status artists with the hopes of getting featured on one of their albums. This will give you exposure to their fans, which will then grow your fan base. So if you're a nobody, you need to make friends with a somebody and then you hope that they invite you into the spotlight. So to all aspiring rappers out there, now you know what to do. But of course, if you think about it, this isn't just how people get ahead in the music business. This is how you get ahead in almost all human endeavors. Find a higher status person that is respected. Find someone with a good name who everyone knows and then associate yourself with them. If you want to grow your business, make friends with businessmen who are successful and well-connected. They'll hook you up. If you want to sell a book, try to get a famous person to read it and then to put an endorsement on the sleeve. If you're looking to be cool in school, not that this is a good goal to pursue, but if you wanted that, the best way to get it is to figure out who's cool and then place yourself beside them as much as possible. We all consciously or unconsciously do this, seek to raise our own status through association, through 
trying to share a little bit of the spotlight from someone else. And Christians do this too, in our own little Christian way. I once attended a church that was filled with smart people. Half the people there had PhDs, and many of them had published uh, notable books. This church was close to my house, and so there's good reason to go there. But at that time in my life, I was also trying to be smart. And it felt like it boosted my credibility among the people I was trying to impress to say that I went to such and such a church with so-and-so. And you know, almost every week, visitors join us here for worship at ACRC, and I love this, and I think it's awesome to be part of a town that's growing and people are coming in. Uh, but low-status visitors don't really help to boost our uh, notoriety as a congregation. But what would happen, for instance, say, if Justin Bieber all of a sudden showed up in our church on a Sunday morning? Justin, baptized Christian, apparently, say he moved to Mulmer, he's Canadian, and all of a sudden, whoa, he shows up on Sunday morning. I have a feeling that when word got out about that, our church would grow faster than a field of potatoes in July. We'd all tell our friends and neighbors, not about that low-status guest who came, but about Justin Bieber. Yesterday, I sang praise songs with Justin Bieber. Who goes to your church? Now, that's kind of a playful example. But the point is, uh, that ordinary visitors are kind of forgettable, whereas high-status visitors are memorable. And we'll mention their name. And we do so to kind of maybe boost up our own status. These status games are as old as the world itself, and stuff like that, uh, like this, certainly happened in ancient Rome, too. Corinth was a place where everyone wanted to get ahead. And they wanted to get there, and the way they got there was by making friends in high places. If you were a citizen, a wealthy patron, you wanted to associate yourself with up-and-coming businessmen in the community. You wanted to build a little network of support. You'd loan out money to up-and-coming businessmen so that when it came time to run for public office, you'd have a large support base that would vote for you. And if you were a client, an up-and-coming entrepreneur, you would seek to be in relationship with other high-status citizens so that you would get publicity, you would get noticed, you'd get more contacts and connections, more business. And if you were a slave or a plebe or a freedman, all these different stratospheres of Roman life, you'd always try to be building connections with people above you so that you could move up the social ladder. And now enter Paul in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that celebrates the death of a man on a cross who is humiliated utterly. And a community forms around this, this call to follow, pick up their cross and follow after him. How does this subvert this get-ahead type attitude? Becoming a Christian in the ancient world was a bit of a status hit. Um, the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. The cross was foolishness to the Greeks. What good would it do to me to be in a relationship with a man and a community like that? 
But Christians in Corinth had something but Christians in Corinth had some things going for them. After all, some high status people had joined the church, like Crispus, who was the leader of the Jewish synagogue, and Erastus. We haven't heard from him yet, but he's coming up. Erastus, who is most likely the head of the public work department in town. And then there's Apollos, who followed Paul and came to Corinth to preach and to teach and to minister the gospel. Apollos was a Jewish Christian from Alexandria. He met Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he was discipled by them. And then he was sent off from the church in Ephesus to Corinth to be the pastor there. And given that Alexandria was a hotspot for education and rhetoric, it's likely that Apollos was an amazing preacher. He was well-respected. He could speak to the Jewish audience because he was raised a Jew. He could also speak to the Greeks because he was taught rhetoric. He was taught in the way of how to impress people with speech, which was really highly prized by the Greeks. A man could start to feel pretty good about himself attending the church with Apollos in the pulpit. You should come check out, come check out my pastor. He's so good at preaching. Come check out my church. I go to Apollos' church. Now, the details are fuzzy concerning the exact nature of what happened next, but essentially a disagreement arose in the church, and it had something to do with the community's relationships to her influencers. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Verse 11, My brothers, my sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me, so this is the verbal report that Paul's receiving, some of them have informed me that there are quarrels, disputes among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. And another says, I follow Cephas, Peter. That's the apostle, uh, the disciple of Jesus, Peter. And still another, I follow Christ. Those are kind of the red letter Christians, right? We're cutting through all this. We're just following Jesus. What's, what's going on here? What's happening in this church? It's likely that the dispute is not theological in nature. Paul, after all, cared a lot about good theology. If there was some sort of truth issue at work here, he'd speak directly to it and say what was so. We can count on Paul to do that. So the dispute is probably not theological. It's probably more likely over allegiance, allegiance or association. Some wanted to claim Paul as their patron saint, while others wanted to be associated more with Apollos. Maybe Apollos had some new ideas. You know, the pastor comes to town, we should do things this way, we should do that thing, do things that way. And those loyal to Paul didn't maybe like these new ideas. Or maybe people were boasting about who was baptized by whom. And they were using this as leverage to gain influence or power in the church. You can just hear the debates kind of raging. Yeah, you know, the Apostle Paul baptized me. He's the greatest missionary ever. Well, I was in Jerusalem and the disciple Peter baptized me and he touched the resurrected Lord. Now imagine this church in Corinth was having to make 
tough decisions like maybe where to hold their Sunday services or who to elect as leadership, as an elder in the church. And because there are these different allegiances and different power struggles happening, they, they start arguing. They start trying to one-up each other. I, I should have more say than you. I was baptized by so-and-so. Well, I follow Apollos, and he's well-respected in the community. So something like this is going on in Corinth. And Paul is not having it. Verse 10, this is, this is Paul's appeal. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. A few things to note about, about Paul's appeal here. First, note that it's an appeal, not a demand. Paul is choosing to engage with this community as brothers and sisters. He's not choosing to put himself on top of this community, pull out his apostolic credentials and listen to me, get in line. He's not going to do that. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. I appeal in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this isn't about me. This isn't about Apollos. This isn't about Peter. Remember the one who gave himself up for you. Jesus didn't play these status games. Instead of eating and drinking with the elites, he ate and drank with tax collectors and sinners. Instead of riding into town on a stallion, he rode into town on a donkey. And then he took off his robe, he put on the servant's towel, and he washed his disciples' feet. And he said, as I have done to you, now you do to each other. In other words, instead of trying to work his way up and up and up, which is the way of the world, Jesus worked his way down and down and down, down unto death, even death on a cross. I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Put off this one-upmanship. Put away all power plays. Agree with one another. Put an end to this tearing. Be perfectly united in the way of Jesus. Paul's not advocating a bland uniformity here, but he, what he is advocating is a need to be unified in their primary allegiance. Who is their Lord? Into whose name were they baptized? Paul? Apollos? No. Verse 13. Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, and maybe there was a few others. I can't remember. In other words, this doesn't matter. Quit. Quit the games people. It's not Paul's blood that forgives sins. It's not Apollos' blood that sets you free. It's Jesus Christ. The servant is nothing. The Lord is everything. Be of the same mind on that. 
is what Paul is saying. Be united in this. Let's have a little less jockeying for position and influence, and let's have more foot washing amongst the body of Christ. You know, there are a lot of forces at work in the world right now that are kind of tearing at the seams of society, pulling us in further and deeper into division. There's Fox and CNN. There's the CBC and the National Post. There's the multitudes of influencers on YouTube and TikTok. And the way the algorithms are set up, encourage divisive content, outrageous thumbnails, get clicks, clicks gets money. So owning your opponents and being as outrageous as possible earns you a passive income. And we are all taking this in. The seams that hold together society are beginning to fray sometimes it feels. And these divisions, these divisions can come into the church too. We can play these games and jockey positions of power. Many churches were literally destroyed by COVID. Not the virus itself, but all the stuff surrounding it. Some were taking their cues from this influential person over here, and others were following this influential person over here, and then, bam, a tear in the fabric. I think it's overly simplistic to say that we can avoid all of this by uh, just sticking with Jesus. People hold different opinions on many things, and we're all forming our opinions in relationship to other people. We influence each other, and sometimes that's a great thing. But what we can get above, though, is the status games and the power plays and the needless bickering and quarreling that pulls us apart. I once knew a woman who, was always, who always made sure when sharing her testimony to mention that she was baptized by such and such a well-known preacher in the Christian Reformed Church. Why is that important? It's not. But she moved in Christian reform circles and name-dropping this particular pastor in a way proved her pedigree in a way. Now, this particular woman was absolutely wonderful. I loved working alongside of her, and she never, ever leveraged this for personal gain. But it doesn't take much for this attitude to settle in and maybe spiral in some weird directions. If we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the time we come, a lot of the time we come to two conclusions on certain issues or lump ourselves in with certain movements, not because we've searched the scriptures ourselves, but because we want to fit in with the crowd whose opinion we care about. We're playing these status games all the time. To my progressive friends, I, I'm careful to distinguish myself from those Bible thumpers down in the States. The ones who got Trump elected. No, no, I'm not one of those. I follow C.S. Lewis and Abraham Kuyper, respectable, intellectual. And to my theological, theologically conservative friends, I'm very careful to, to state my adherence to the Heidelberg Catechism and John Calvin and uh, come and take a, look at, uh, take a look at my long list of books by Tim Keller. I follow these guys. Oh, yeah, he's a good pastor, right? We have these games we play to try to 
prove ourselves. We want to receive applause and avoid humiliation. We want to gain power and avoid weakness. And this dance leads more often than not to power struggles and schisms as we line up behind our guiding stars. But enter, you know, in the status games we play, this concert trying to make appear good, look good, work our way up. Enter the gospel. Enter the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus? I think it's perfectly described in another of Paul's letters, the letter to the Philippians. The way of Jesus. If you have an encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, says Paul, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same of that of Jesus Christ. Here's the attitude. Who being in very nature God, up there, high status, right? Very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him, raised him up, and gave him the name that is high above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the way of Jesus. Humble, self-sacrificial love all the way down into death. And then God raised them up. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad that Jesus didn't play status games during his ministry on earth. Would he have associated himself with me if he did? When John was baptizing at the Jordan, people from all over were streaming out to be baptized by him. Sinners looking for a new start, repenting, beginning again. And Jesus, very nonchalantly, hopped into line with all the other sinners, identifying with them, associating with them. If Jesus was playing status games, he wouldn't be interested in me, a simple guy from southern Ontario. I don't have much of a following. Hanging out with me would not boost Jesus' status. And probably the same is true for you. And yet he willingly allowed himself to be humiliated for us, stripped of his clothing, spat upon and beaten, and he died the most humiliating death that is possible 
so that we who are nothing really can be raised up with him and given a place at the Father's table, a seat, a place to belong. The world travels up the hierarchy status. We seek status through association with those who have it, but Jesus travels down, and then he lifts up the poor in spirit. And so I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, our attitude should be the same as that as Christ Jesus. Let's turn away from the way of the world, the power plays, the schisms, the petty quarreling, and let's pick up the cross and follow after Christ. May we be united in that. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, send out your spirit to make us humble and caring, selfless and sharing. Lord, we repent of the ways we play these games to earn the applause of our peers. Help us, Lord, to not do that, but to simply serve as you have served us. Lord, make us unified in that way, in you, in your name and in your way, that we might be as you were to us, to one another, and showcase that to our neighbors, friends, and city. And we do give thanks, Lord, that you associated with us and that you have lifted us up to be with you and to have a seat at your table. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.